Welcome to Season 2 from A Lancashire Lass with me, Lucy Baxter. Joining me today is the MP for Westmoreland and Lonsdale and former Lib Dem leader Tim Farron. He's been the MP for that constituency since 2005. Now, before working in Parliament, Tim worked in higher education, but he was born in Preston. He went to Lostock Hall High School and then studied at Runshaw College. So is the epitome of a Lancashire lad. He went to study politics at Newcastle University. But in this podcast episode, we're not going to be talking about what's currently happening and sort of the nitty gritty politics as such. We're going to be chatting to Tim about what it was like for him growing up in Preston, his career in politics, and also touching a bit about his faith. So Tim, welcome to this podcast episode and thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? Uh, Lucy, I'm fine. Thanks for having me. Are you all right? Yes, I'm good. Thank you. I'd like to go back to when you were a little boy, sort of, what did you enjoy? Were you always sort of interested in politics when you were younger? Well, not very. It depends what you mean by interested in politics. Um, I think like everybody else, I mean, I was just a few weeks short of my ninth birthday when Mrs Thatcher was elected. Um, And that was, you know, a big deal, a woman becoming prime minister. And that's the first election I remember. But it had no, the only impact it had upon me Um, I didn't have any strong views either way. I felt sorry for Jim Callaghan, who she beat. I remember his uh, speech where he said he'd at least have more time to see his grandchildren. I thought, well, that's nice. (laughs) Um, I don't remember anything about Margaret Thatcher other than this was a big deal that a woman was prime minister. And that that was, you know, that was a good thing. Um, I have to say, and I don't think this is me, you know, uh, reinterpreting the past to suit myself. But I remember remember liking David Steele who was the Liberal leader, and thinking he looked the most normal of the lot. <laughs> but I, I, literally, I was I was still nine. So um, what was I interested in? I mean, my first political memory, I have recollections, if you can call them politics, um, of the blackouts in the early mid-70s when there were all the strikes and the energy crisis. Um, I have a recollection of some of the strikes um, in the sort of mid seventies, about the firemen's strike, that was a big deal. I remember seeing army tanks on the streets, or what they call them, the green goddesses, um, the kind of army uh, fire trucks as the firemen were on strike. And I remember Harold Wilson um, resigning as prime minister in seventy six. And my grandpa worked on the railways, and so he got free first class travel. I remember going down with him and my grandma one summer's day, uh, first time I've been to London, um, and walking down Downing Street. As a sick, literally, you can walk, then you can't now, it's all sealed off, but you can literally walk past number 10. Um, so, but that wasn't me having opinions, that was just um, politics was just around. I was far more interested in football and getting muddy. Yeah, I mean, every time there's a general election, sort of nowadays, I always stay up sort of all night on the sofa watching the results coming on the TV. What point do you think maybe your political opinions sort of? developed and you thought you know what I mean obviously as I said you went to uni to do politics but Mm. at what point did you sort of develop that kind of aspect? Well in one sense it's a good question I I almost looked forward to that at some point in the future almost because um, I've never been a spectator in politics I went straight onto the field if you like so there's never been an election where I could sit at home and watch it because I'm in it you know so um, I remember the 83 election 
and felt much more engaged in that. But only as a kind of 13 year old who thought it was all very interesting. I don't really think even at that point I had serious opinions um, uh, that I was aware of anyway, not not one party over another. Um, but 87, which was the next election, you know, I joined the Liberals, what, eight or nine months earlier. And I spent the entire election delivering leaflets and knocking on doors and being part of a campaign. And then I went to account um, and with all the kind of naivety of a young liberal, you know, at 16, 17, um, was shocked the candidate I'd supported came third. <laughs> I assumed he'd win. Um, um, so, but what triggered my interest in politics is a little bit harder to fathom. I, 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 there's, there's two or three things I'm sure that influenced it. I think the first was um, an engagement with, so for example, Spitting Image, uh, which I know has made a kind of a return to our screens. But back in the days when there were only three or four channels and you had to just watch what was on, uh, you had huge communal televisual events um, uh, everybody watched the same thing. And the next day at school, everybody talked about it. Because, um, you know, most people didn't have video recorders or anything like that. So you watched it when it was on. So, and there were two of those that really, really struck home every single week. Thursday night was Top of the Pops. So Friday morning, you talked about it. And Sunday evening was Spitting Image. And so on Monday, you had a whole bunch of kids who weren't that interested in politics doing impressions of people doing impressions of politicians. <laughs> Um, so that we got. So that made me. Uh, that made a lot of us interested in the characters of British politics. The second thing, which I always say, and it, you know, uh, it's true. Um, I watched a, re a repeat on I think BBC Two. I think of Kathy Come Home, the very famous, powerful, um, very gritty, realistic film about homelessness, set well, written and, and recorded in the sixties. But I watched it in nineteen eighty four when I was fourteen, and it made me cry, and I, it made me join Shelter. Um, the campaign for the homeless, which I, I went and did literally the next day. I went, you know, there was a little thing after saying, you want to join Shelter? Or maybe it was in The Guardian the following day. Either way, I cut out a coupon. I went down to the post office. I pooled my pocket money and bought a postal order for £1.50 and um, joined Shelter. And then maybe the third thing um, was, I, I went to Lostical High School, as you said. Uh, we didn't have a sixth form. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't a bad school. I think, I, you know, I think, I think we were a bad year. Me and a mate of mine... Me and a mate of mine years later worked out that more kids had gone to prison from our year than went to university. <laughs> um, but um, but that was, you know, that was, we, we were, there was a, a, an aberration. There was one particular offence where three people went down for the same football oh. hooliganism related offence. Um, so that was triple counting. But but anyway, um, but we had we had a teacher, a geography teacher called Mr Hubbersty, who did economics. And it was unheard of for, you know, a school at Ossacall to offer economics O-level, which is, you know, GCSE as it is today. Um, and um, and economics really opened my mind, uh, opened my eyes to things. And you know, so I didn't, I didn't hate Margaret Thatcher. Lots of people did. Um, I thought she was quite an impressive woman. But then I began to understand a bit more about the her economic policies and what they were about. And I began to connect the things that she was doing in London with the experience of my family, lots of other people's families facing serious unemployment. You know, unemployment isn't just like you know bad weather. It's a thing you can't. Effect. It's generally speaking the result of government policy or government failures, and it felt worse for me with Margaret Thatcher um, because I thought what I saw, and I still believe it to be the case, that she was she was trying to do two things: control inflation, which is you know a reasonable thing to want to do, and to destroy the trade unions, um, uh, which is a less reasonable thing to do. Um, and one way of doing both of those things was to 
make sure that you artificially inflated the unemployment figures by starving the economy of cash. And if people aren't in work, they can't spend money, so prices don't go up. And if people aren't in work, they can't join unions, and so the unions get smashed. Um, and I remember that penny dropping uh, as I did my economics O-level mock, and I thought, these people are terrible. <laughs> I have to do something about this. Um, and um, and anyway, I just, maybe going back to me looking at David Steele when I was eight or nine, but I, I think, I thought Labour were part of the establishment in Lancashire. I thought, I've always been an awkward kid, um, and the Liberals were there for the awkward kids. Um, so I joined the Liberals. Yeah, I was going to sort of ask why you decided to become an MP for the Liberal Democrats. So was it sort of, as you said, you kind of looked at Labour and thought, no, or did you... Did it naturally fit? I know when we were in year 11, sixth form, we did a quiz to see what party mm. it fit with. Um, was it sort of you just were reading more of the policies and, and thought, yep, that's a bit of me? No, I think it's more of a gut feel. I mean, I knew some of the policies. I knew that the Liberals were good on the environment. I knew that they were internationalists. They believed it was being in Europe and as um, seeking to do, you know, um, better quality international relations, not hiding behind the flag but embracing other cultures and other countries I liked that and I I liked the fact that they wanted to change the electoral system to something fairer um so all those things I liked but really you know you might vote for a party on the basis of its policies but I think you join a party because of its feel because it chimes with what you feel in your gut and I and I thought yeah and I so I got involved in the Liberals and I joined in my first or second week at sixth form um and and I didn't join thinking even as an enthusiastic ambitious well not ambitious enthusiastic idealistic 16 year old um I knew then I hadn't made a very wise career choice um it wasn't like I so I didn't join the liberals in order to become an MP I joined the liberals because it felt right and then within about a fortnight if that had been a, a member of the party I, I you know the party needed a candidate for a student union election at Runshaw so I stood and lost uh, I lost an election. I should have won, by the way. Um, but um, good experience. Um, so, um, but yeah, I mean, so the, the, the wanting to become an MP was much was much later, and it was a gradual thing. I didn't sort of sit down and make a kind of career decision. Yeah. Did you enjoy sixth form and sort of that age of being mm. alive? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I did. I mean, so I often think I'm really. I felt really lucky, actually, to have had a lot of variety at that age and to have very tolerant friends who are still my friends. Um, so, you know, I love I love football. I'm a Blackburn Rovers fan. We can get to that in a minute, if you like, because there's, there's a, I perhaps ought to be a North Ender, but I'm not, and I'll tell you why in a bit, if you like. Um, but, you know, I used to go and watch the Rovers and my grandfather um, and a couple of friends and cousins. I would um, uh, do my politics at the Students' Union. I quite enjoyed my A-levels most of the time. Um, I enjoyed living where I did, which was, you know, um, uh, kind of urban, but there's a bit of countryside behind us. Um, and I loved being in a band. I was in a band with two of my best mates and I still am very good mates with them. Um, so I felt and I think because I went to Runshaw College, many of you will know it, it's colossal. So most in my patch in, in South Lakeland, I think of the eight high schools in my constituency, five of them have got sixth forms. Um, but in South Ribbon in Chorley, nearly none of the schools have got sixth form. So nearly everybody goes to Runshaw yep. and even more so now than, than was the case. So, you know, I went to do A-levels, another friend went to do A-levels, another friend went to do B-tech, another friend went to do 
Um, well, two of the friends went to do vocational things. So all five of us went to the same place. And, and you know, we wouldn't have done if it had been a traditional sixth form. And so you felt treated a bit more like a grown up. Um, and I'm sure it had a huge impact on my politics because there wouldn't have been a student's union if I'd gone to a normal school sixth form. Um, you know, I went to the NUS conference, National Union of Students conference, about two months, three months into my, into lower sixth. There I was I at 16. You're just a, a wash and uh, with this absolutely crazy cauldron of extreme left wing um you know stuff where everybody belonged to different factions and they all hated each other more than they hated the tories and they thought wow um this is exciting and very strange um and uh, so no, I, yeah and i, I so yeah my, my years at six from 16 to 18 were very formative um and i think i was able to be grounded not just because i you know my family and good mates and the band i was in and following a football team but also that I managed to fall in with the right kind of political activists um, because I didn't just do student politics. I got drawn in to what I can only call a tribe of um, elderly Methodist ladies uh, in <laughs> Leyland, um, uh, who included you know, two or three of the councillors and their acolytes. Um, and they introduced me to what we call liberal community politics. These are people who were lifelong liberals, most of them. Um, and they were, uh, and they, you know, many of them were the councillors in the town. Um, led by a lady called Neva Oral, who is, remains my hero, God rest her. Um, and, um, and so I got from them a sense of what it was to actually be involved in grown-up politics. And it was to serve people and to, to care about your community. It wasn't about pontificating about what you think about the big issues. It was about getting your hands dirty in the community in which you'd been placed. And the story about Neva Oral is that you know, she joined the Liberals in 1949 when we were on about 2% in the opinion polls. Um, she was pregnant with her second child. Like everyone else, she'd lived through a war. She'd lost people. It had a devastating impact upon her personally and emotionally. And she joined a movement who, in her, her eyes, um, stood um, for the kind of ideals that made it least likely that we'd get a repeat of a war. Um, and, and so she joined the Liberals for those lofty, lofty reasons. She was elected to the council 11 years later by 13 votes and the Tories were so shocked they didn't ask for a recount. Um, and she stayed on the council on and off, but mostly on, right the way until she passed away aged 89 in 2002. Yeah. Um, and, and so and some people think, oh yeah, she had all these lofty internationalist ideals. And then all she did was, you know, pound the streets of Leyland for half a century. Was that a great come down? I think absolutely, definitely not. Um, because, you know, you, you say you've got these ideals, well, tweeting about it doesn't prove you've got them. Doing something about it in the community in which you have been placed 100% does. So um, I feel really blessed that I fell in with a good crowd, a crowd of, <laughs> of, of little old ladies with tangerine and blue rinses who are committed to serving the people of Leyland. They taught me really good habits and they uh, left a, a bar that was very high. And it does also mean sometimes I feel a little bit sniffy about others in politics who I think do spend their time emoting and not enough doing. Yeah. You mentioned that you were in a band. I did read this. Um, <laughs> what what music was it? Like, what did you play? I believe you toured. <laughs> what was it called? <laughs> we didn't really tour. We played a few things here and there, but um, we, um, we were, well, we had various names. Um, my favourite name was Fred the Girl. Uh, which was based on a dream that I'd had about a kind of Minnie the Mink style First World War fighter pilot who crashed and died. <laughs> so there you are. Um, but, uh, but, you know, it was a weird, 
a, che a cheese dream, we can only call it. Um, and uh, but I like Fred the Girl, um, but we're called Portfolio. Uh, we were called The Voyeurs for a while, and we liked the name The Voyeurs because it sounded a bit futuristic. And then my mother told me what it meant, and it's a bit rude. Uh, so we, <laughs> um, but we were just, we, honestly, we were just three mates with a couple of other mates, or three other mates who hung around with us as well, who were, you know, I will, we were just made to hung around together and three of us were in a band that's a better and nicer way of putting it and a more accurate way of putting it um there's robert who played bass um and had the uh, drum machine and then he also invested in because he was the one who was working in all the electronica um keyboards sequences and all the rest of it david who um uh is a, a teacher these days um uh is was it was a guitarist and is a good guitarist is a really good guitarist and i was the singer and wrote some of the songs and i was just hanging along really i'd been a good soprano when i was you know until i was 12 um and i could just about hold a note after my voice broke but that's about it really i was just i was just their mate um but it was a scream you know it's a good thing um we got i don't know how close we got to making it um robert's mum who's sadly no longer with us, was kind of our manager, Joyce. Um, and uh, she was um, really enthusiastic. Um, and uh, I would send off our tapes and our photographs to various companies. And Island Records got back in touch and invited us down for a session. And it didn't happen because of my exams. And so oh. it's all my fault. It's all my fault. Um, we could have made it, but... Um, but you know, maybe not. But it's a great stage on which to play out a friendship. It was just a laugh, you know. It was an extra thing to do. And although we never made it, and uh, very few people ever saw us play, um, it gave us a bit of kudos at sixth form um, that we were in a band. <laughs> well, here's the band coming through the, the hallway. <laughs> yeah. And and so you also mentioned football. So why why Rovers and not North End? So because we were, I mean, I was born at Shara Green um, in Preston, I mean, literally probably a mile away or so from Deepdale. Um, and I was brought up in the first few years of my life in Horton, which is kind of halfway between Blackburn and Preston. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the time, I think, you know, my mother it technically was Pemberton, but really it was lost a call right by the Gasworks Road. Um, it's all been converted into housing now, but it wasn't then. Um, we had family all over Lancashire, um, Bolton, Blackpool, Darwin, Preston in particular and the the Preston lot of the family were were North Enders of course um but they didn't go to games um and, and the Darwin crowd did um and I had two older cousins I still have two older cousins one of them's just retired which makes me feel old uh probably makes him feel older um and they were and we and we used to spend every boxing day at theirs at Darwin or they would come to us but either way you know every, most boxing days at least I remember um, my cousins would come back from the match, uh, first of my uncle, and then after my uncle passed away, just themselves. Um, you know, so, f fully glamorous in the kit with rattles, and I thought I want a piece of that. Um, and so they took me, and I, I suppose so. I suppose I had options. I could have supported Preston, Blackpool, Bolton, or Blackburn, given all the family connections. But you know, the Preston, Bolton, and Blackpool um, families were armchair fans and never went. And mm. the Blackburn Rovers family were proper committed uh, mm. season ticket holders and they went. And so, you know, there you go. That's how it happened. I'm sure that has been a lockdown 
quiz question what football team you support and i'm sure it's a <laughs> trick question so now yeah. I've okay, no, i do i do sometimes feel like i have no animosity towards preston north end at all um i know some rovers fans do but obviously the, to me the rivalry is with bernie and you still try not to be too beastly about it all um and there is part of me that think well in a parallel universe i'm sure i'm a north ender but you know you are what you are and you've got to stick to it yeah. so there you go Definitely. If we go back to sort of when you started out as an MP, why Westmoreland and Lonsdale and Cumbria, given that obviously you are mm. from Lancashire? And is it a large constituency? Well, I think, um, so yeah, let's, let's, let's go backwards with that one. It's a huge constituency. I mean, some of them are bigger. Um, there are bigger constituencies in mine. But at the moment, you know, if you know South Cumbria at all, I shall know you do, um, Kendall's the big town. Um, I go out as far west as the Greenodd Roundabout, if you know it, um, or if you want to go into the hills, then Coniston and Torva. And the boundary on the west is somewhere between Torva and Broughton and Furness. Um, at north, as you'll know, Grasmere, about three miles north of Grasmere is the boundary at Dunmel Rays. And then the boundary gets a bit more foggy um, and a bit more arbitrary as it goes through the kind of hills. Uh, I think the most northerly point is a place called Grisdale Tarn, mm-hmm. uh, most northerly point off the road. Um, and then it sort of comes down as a kind of irregular, um, jagged line uh, following, you know, north through mid North Westmoreland. Um, so um, Great Brayrig is in it, um, Furbank's in it. And then we go out into the Orchard Dales. So Sedford, Dent, Garsdale. And then you come around, I'm going clockwise now, so sort of Kirby Lonsdale and then. Um, basically, it's the Lancashire border, and um, uh, but, but it is, it's it's huge. And and of course, the other thing to say is the seat is called Westmoreland and Lonsdale, but half, maybe maybe slightly more than half, but half of the geography of the constituency is old Lancashire. Um, um, so you know, Grange and Coniston and Hawkshead, um, the Cartmel, Flukeborough, these are all um, Lancashire over the sands. But so how did I get there? I mean, so. Um, I guess I had two or three links, really. I mean, so I lived in Leyland. Um, after I came back from university, um, I moved to Leyland and I ended up succeeding Neva Oral as the county councillor for Leyland. And, um, and I worked at Lancaster University and uh, I met Rosie, who is now my wife. Um, and she lived in a village a little bit south of Kirby Lonsdale. We did a lot of our courting in Kirby Lonsdale. Um, working for the university, both Lancaster University and then later St Martin, which is now the University of Cumbria, they had an outpost in Ambleside, um, uh, which of course is still now part of the University of Cumbria, and I worked there quite a lot. And so they were my connections. And then I think after the '97 general election, where the Lib Dems have done very well across the country, um, I kind of told myself I'd like to have a crack at something I could win at least the once. Mm-hmm. And work, and you know, um, and my relationship with Rosie just drew me to. Um, Westmoreland basically and I applied I was selected um, in 2001 I lost but I had a good go <laughs> and I could have given up and there were moments when I thought you know what I could do other things in my life I could have a better garden you know I could <laughs> go to watch the football more um, but I was persuaded I think rightly wisely to keep going and in 2005 I was elected so that's the short potted history but it was uh, it was a rocky ride I think you know Liberal, when Liberal Democrats win, they have to defy gravity. Um, and to keep winning is to keep defying gravity. And there will be some people on your own side who, though they don't mean it, sometimes they might mean it, they'll try and slow you down, um, bog you down. Um, um, because 
wanting to win is one thing, but do you want so much, do you want it to win enough to make the changes you need to do to win, to raise the money, to do the work, to psychologically go through that pain barrier where you put yourself in a position where you could be crushed by defeat because you think you could really win. Um, and so I often think we had to overcome the Liberal Democrats here before we could beat the Conservatives. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, it was, a real, it, was, it was a great challenge, a great struggle. And it continues because, you know, the minute you get complacent is the minute you deserve to lose. Did you think that the coalition with the Conservatives and Nick Clegg would have, I don't know, like raised, did it help raise the profile of the Lib Dems? And did, was there any point where people thought that the Lib Dems might be the official opposition after that, just in terms of the fact that they were in coalition? Mm. Well, I think the moment, there was a moment before the coalition, um, particularly Particularly in that kind of period between 2001 and 2005, the Iraq War, um, you had the Conservative Party led by Ian Duncan Smith, um, you know, who's you know, got many things we could say positive about him, but um, he was not an effective leader and we were beginning to overtake the Conservatives. So you had a bizarre situation where Labour and the Liberal Democrats could have been the two main parties and in some opinion polls we were, but the Conservatives got rid of um, a leader who was dragging them down brackets that may or may not have some <laughs> relevance for today and they elected or appointed Michael Howard who was not outstanding but he was he steadied the ship and so the Conservatives the fact that Conservatives are in power today owes an awful lot to Michael Howard I'd say because he stopped their decline because we could have overtaken them but we didn't um but we had we had um four decent general election results in a row for when I say decent I mean by our standards colossally good um we went up from normally having between a dozen and 20 MPs um or half a dozen and 20 MPs which have been our normal for the previous several decades um up to 46 I think it was in uh, 97 up to 52 in 01 62 when I was first elected that went up to 63 because we won a by-election in Dunfermline that's our high point then we fell down to 57 uh, in 2010, which was when the coalition started, and then it was down to eight. <laughs> um, so, um, but I think the coalition, I, I thought we didn't, re looking back, I wonder, but at the time, I don't think we had any alternative but to go into the coalition. Um, and so I think, but I also knew it was going to damage us electorally for at least a generation. Um, because I thought, if you look at the arithmetic, Liberal Democrats plus Labour, was 11 seats short of majority. So people who say, oh, you should only do with Labour haven't looked at the maths um, or they've chosen not to look at the maths. Mm. Um, now, what I wasn't part of the negotiating team, but I know the people who were. I was one of those people, so was Ed Davey, by the way, who encouraged Nick Clegg to talk to Labour as well as the Tories, even, we know, even though we knew the sums didn't add up, just to at least talk. And so they did. And apparently our negotiators went in to talk to the Labour negotiators and their reply was, well, we'll talk to you, but we're not going to talk to the SNP with a barge pole. <laughs> um, and that the only way there could have been a non-Tory majority in that parliament that led to the coalition would have been if the SNP and Plaid Cymru were on board with Labour and the Liberal Democrats. Mm -hmm. And so it, for the moment, Labour weren't interested in that. Then there was no alternative coalition. So the only choice we really had was to go into coalition with the Conservatives, as we did, um, or to sit on our hands, let the Conservatives form a minority administration, and then they would inevitably have called a general election in the autumn that I think they inevitably would have won. That was our calculation anyway, and we just mm. took the view, it's better to have five years with us in there than to have to basically hand the keys to number 10 to the Tories. Um, and I think, on balance, 
I mean, I got caught saying this and I got told out for saying, got told off by Paddy Ashdown, God rest him, um, for saying this as well. Um, uh, but I think I was right. <laughs> Maybe not right to say it, but I think I was right. That I would give us eight out of 10 for policy in the coalition, but I'd give us two out of 10 for politics. I thought we were incredibly naive in how we presented ourselves and allowed ourselves to be presented. And too many people enjoyed being in government more than they understood the importance of communicating cleverly to the electorate. And so we were immediately written off as Tory lackeys and weak and all the rest of it. And so um, I think we were, we were in real trouble the minute we signed the coalition agreement electorally. And the minute we did the stupid thing we did over tuition fees, it was curtains for us. Um, you know, I voted against it um, and I can defend the detail of it, but I can't defend making a promise and then breaking it. And, you know, it's a thing that Conservative MPs ought to think a little bit about their current situation. There comes a point where one's leader, however good you think they are, um, and however good they are at playing to their gallery, you realise the gallery has shrunk to nearly nothing and their voice doesn't get heard. Yeah, if we talk about sort of um, when you were leader of, of the Lib Dems, what, what was that like? And in terms of sort of the responsibility changing from obviously you, you were still an MP as well as that. And so and how did it feel? I don't know, the first time you had to speak as leader in the House of Commons. You see, I think that's quite a, when I watch it on um, like the TV, there's a lot of, you know, cheering and and hear, hear and a lot of sort of what I, I, I don't know. I class it as kind of lad banter. They're all kind of like, yeah, 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 you know, and and it doesn't feel a very it feels quite intimidating. So I don't know yeah. how it feels. <laughs> well, just putting aside what it was like to be leader, I find that stuff. I don't necessarily find it intimidating. I find it um annoying i just think you know you're grown men and women flipping get a life um and and, I, and you, you know so i you know there are times where you get cross um and times when you think someone says something really funny or 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 that you agree with and you might you know approve of that but there's just a constant baying and jeering just grow up um i hate it and i've always hated it now the issue is you see um uh, you know, Keir Starmer standing up and he gets jeered at by the Tories and Boris Johnson sometimes he gets jeered by Labour and Ian Blackford stands up and gets jeered by, you know, the Tories in particular. But they all have reasonable number of MPs behind them cheering them on. Now, when I was leader, there was eight of us. <laughs> so I had seven people who probably weren't there half the time. Um, and um, uh, so it was just me and you just have to learn to make eye contact with the speaker and with the Prime Minister, or whoever it is you're asking the question of, and just go through it. And remember, you've got a microphone and you can be heard. You might not think you can be heard because the noise is so loud in the chamber, but everybody outside, they can hear you because you've got a mic and everybody else's is dimmed to a degree. Um, and um, so, yeah, don't don't get put off, know what you want to say and... and, and uh, and say it but yeah you're very much aware of the fact that you are a leader of a tiny number of people and and you're there as you know as bait what was the hardest thing about being leader well i think actually trying to be a good constituency mp and being a good leader and i tried to i knew that you can't do everything um as a local mp i tried to do everything um but as leader you can't and so the two things you've got to establish is is clarity and credibility 
Um, and so the credibility comes really by winning some elections and that was hard to do. And we did start winning the elections and we started winning council elections. We won a parliamentary by-election for the first time in more than 10 years. Um, and, um, you know, much else beside our membership went up. But clarity was the key thing for me. We had to be clear what it was we were for. And we'd just been decimating. You're taking over. It's like taking over a management of a team that's just been relegated. I mean, relegated like Rangers style, three divisions, you know. <laughs> um, and um, and you've got, you've not just got less resources, fewer resources, you've got an absolutely wounded, shellacked, demoralised team. Um, and um, and so you've just got to G people up. And so I, I, my, my, I only had two years as leader, so I, they were kind of, there was two modules to it. And module one was pre-Brexit. Um, and it was really to focus on two issues. One was just to write, um, do the Neva Oral stuff, work your community love your community um coming back to the top table might be a long hard slog start now um you know get if you've got if you're in a, in a town or a district where there's no lib dem councillors pick a war just the one and win it um and concentrate your efforts there um so about equipping people reconnect maybe we'd spent so much time with being a as being a bigger party we thought we were a bit above all that and i wanted to reconnect as we get our hands dirty in the communities that we served and be inspiring people to think that was a good thing which is why neva's story is just a good one to keep reminding people of and mm. um, but the other thing was refugees now you know i think 80 percent of people don't really care either way i think 10 percent are really angry about it um and against refugees and 10 percent are really passionate that we should care for them um and i uh, but I, I thought that, and lots of politicians are scared of talking about it because they think the 80% in the middle lean more towards being suspicious about asylum seekers and refugees, given what the newspapers tend to tell them. Um, and I thought, well, first, because it's morally right. And secondly, because it gives us a cause. Um, I decided to make refugees my thing. Um, and you might think I was a bit out there, but I thought it connected us with a sense of when you've been annihilated, and we had been, um, what we needed was a purpose and a cause that gave us a meaning um, and made us feel good about ourselves because we're doing something that was right. And so that's the thing we did. And, you know, and I still do that. I was at a, an asylum uh, barracks um, just yesterday. Um, um, so I didn't just do it to give the party a position. I do it because I care. Um, so I think that helped. And then, of course, Brexit happened. And mm. we got very little coverage during the Brexit campaign. You remember the Remain campaign was basically Cameron and Osborne. That was it. Um, you've, you heard very few other people. Their hearts were barely in it. Their message was basically all project fear. Brackets it turned out mostly to be right, but anyway. Um, uh, but that was, but it was uninspiring, um, and it was so frustrating for people like me who were passionate about being in the European Union for all of its faults, critical of many of its uh, realities, but you know, passionate about being in the European Union to see the campaign lost. You know, it'd be like you know, it's like seeing your team, you know, beaten in a game when you've got your best players and the bench and the manager won't put them on and so those of us who really cared about um uh, our position our relationship with the rest of the world and I mean, in europe were um were, were demoralized and we i made a decision anyway about a week before polling day the referendum uh, i did something which david cameron didn't do i had a little bit of a plan for what i'd do if we lost <laughs> um and the plan was basically we've got to get out there in the airwaves and reflect with authenticity the emotions of the millions of people who will be crushed by this result so we did um and it saved the liberal democrats i'm going to, i'm down to say that but I'm to, it did it was marmite but when you are 
in the process of evaporating into insignificance and irrelevance and non-existence. Marmite is what you need. You don't need the blamange. You need stuff that's going to jar, upset some people, motivate others. And the party's membership trebled. And we went on to win council elections week after week after week. And we ended up winning Zach Goldsmith's parliamentary seat in a by-election in the December. So I think we made right choices. Um, but in the end, I think, you know, uh, Theresa May called the election a little bit too early for us. Um, I think well, our, our rebuild wasn't quite ready. And of course, the media thought that uh, me and the weird things that I believe in this God that I follow was more interesting than the policies that I had. Yeah, if we touch on your faith a bit now, um, just as we sort of close the, the episode. So you, were you a, a Christian sort of from being born or sort of when did you make that decision? Well, so I always tell you that I made a decision when I was 18 and I was not brought up in a Christian household, but this was the 70s and 80s. I was born in 1970, so I was 18, 1988, but I, I became a Christian then, but it was an era which was slightly different now. If you were to ask me at 13, 14, 16, 17, whatever, you know, I would have probably said, um, you know, yeah, I'm a Christian because I'm English, aren't I? You know, <laughs> um, I'd never been to church. I think I once went actually with my dad. My dad's Catholic, but we didn't live with my dad. We lived with my mum. And my mum was your, um, you've heard of the nouveau riche, you know, loads of cash and no, no class. My mum was the exact opposite. She was a nouveau poor. Guardian reading, you know, uh, documentary watching, well-read, um, cultured, and without two brass farthings thrown together. <laughs> um, and um, uh, so, um, but so she was very much, you know, your liberal, sceptical, Guardian reading sort of centre-lefty. Um, I don't think she was an atheist, but she was certainly somebody, I think it wasn't just my mum, it's quite a British thing, this. Um, uh, very snippy about anybody who's too keen about anything. <laughs> Um, and and I think that um, I absolutely bought that. And so therefore, you know, people, it's not that I was anti-God. I probably would have thought atheists would have been a bit too keen as well. Um, but I think I thought anybody who took it too seriously. Um, when I got to sick, when I got to sixth form, I met a lad called Jack. He was a really nice guy who was the college Christian. And mm. I really, really liked him. Lots of people really liked Jack. Um, uh, but I thought his faith was boring. Um uh, unattractive um, based on something that probably wasn't true <laughs> and then so my mum became a she was she'd been a mature student at uh, Preston Polytechnic now the University of Central Lancashire um, and and then she ended up being a lecturer and she got seconded to, uh, to college in Singapore which failed <laughs> uh, after only a few months but uh, me and my sister went out with her for that summer between my A-levels and going to university so I was out there five or six weeks and the house we were put in um, had previous tenants and they'd been Christians. They were lecturers at the college too. They'd left their books behind the room I was put in. I got bored. I read them. And one night, something like the 1st or 2nd of August, 1988, the thought occurred to me, oh, flipping heck, it's true. <laughs> um, so I didn't want to become a Christian. I wasn't looking for it, I don't think. I mean, I was probably as mixed up as any 18-year-old was, but... Um, uh, nevertheless, I, I don't think I was looking for it. I wasn't looking for meaning consciously. And just that, oh my goodness me, the, the Bible, Christianity isn't just this old religion. Um, and, you know, it, it's a dynamic thing. We're on a journey and we're not there yet. And I've been invited on board. Um, so, you know, I put my faith in Jesus. I spent the next two months not meeting another Christian. I told all my friends who thought I'd gone bonkers. <laughs> and then I go to university in Newcastle 
um, I said about eight weeks after I'd become a Christian, and a guy who lived in the hall room residence room next door, uh, a guy called Pete, who's a medic and he's now a doctor, knocked on my door and asked me would I come to the Navigators, which is a kind of Christian students group. He could have had no idea that I was a Christian, no idea at all. I mm. mean, I did all I'd done was introduce myself, not even to him, you know. Um, so he, he, he didn't even know my name, never mind I was a Christian. Um, and that's how I got, he was the first Christian I met, uh, knowingly, and um, it's been up and down since then, but I'm not saved by my efforts, but by Jesus. Would you say a career in politics is hard when you're a Christian in terms of, I, I do very much feel like what your sort of beliefs are do, do reflect obviously like the Christian beliefs, you know, helping people and things like that. It's very, I feel as a Christian myself, it's very clear what what you do um but is it hard it's always hard i mean to be a christian is to be a struggle um i'm in a i'm in a, a fellowship group in, in parliament all party and we were doing hebrews 10 this week and amongst the things that we were looking at is that there's lots of exhortations to keep going you know to not follow false teaching to um to be faithful to consider how we might do good works it's a reminder we are saved by grace um, through faith in Jesus alone that's the only way we're saved and that should give us a sense of great you know relief really um that if it was down to me I'd screw it up <laughs> but it's not it's down to Jesus so it's you know it's fine we're in safe hands but one of the ways we are kept safe is by persevering um and so yes it is a struggle but you're not meant to get 10 out of 10 you will not get 10 out of 10 he's got 10 out of 10 for you so it's fine but you're still to try in response to that amazing grace um and uh, so, yeah, but I think, I think the thing that jars the most um, with people who are not Christians in any culture, but particularly in this one, is the fact that Christianity tells you that you're not your own um, and that you owe obedience to one greater than yourself, that you're not your own God. Um, and, um, and that really jars with the culture. It jars with every culture, but it particularly jars with this one. Um, uh, but, you know, the greatest liberation is to humbly accept that there is a God in heaven. Do you have like a particular verse or I don't know, worship song or something that helps you if, if mm. through times or anything? Well, there's lots really. Um, I mean, cast all your care, cast all your worries onto him for he cares for you. The kind of image of, you know, just throwing it out there. You cast the stone on the water, you know, you're getting rid of it. Um, and uh, he will absorb them just as the water absorbs that stone. Um, I also love the, you know, um, uh, the, he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, don't worry, you know, you will screw up. You will screw up. Um, and, um, uh, and I think also, you know, the most, the most famous verse in the Bible, obviously, uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life tells you everything you need to know really um uh, the whoever is a really important thing um if you've heard that then that whoever is you um and i guess the i mean another one i mean i, I did the sermon at the parliamentary chapel um in november or something and i was given oh golly what's the actual reading i can tell you what it is it's this it's the it's the um, the story the parable of um of the tax collector and the pharisee mm. going into the temple and the tax collector stands up head, chest out and um thanks god for what a good man he is and all that um and the tax collector stays at the back head bowed and says 
God have mercy upon me, a sinner. And I think that also tells you everything you need to know. It tells you the thing that you tells you what you are. It tells you what you need more than anything else. And the only person you can get it from. And the thing Jesus, of course, says after he's told that parable is that that man is justified. So, you know, that guy did not have to go to prayer group every week. Uh, that guy did not have to have taken communion. That guy did not have to be baptized um, or any of those things. He needed to ask for mercy and mercy is given. Well, on that note, I think I, I could just chat for ages about everything, but you are such a busy person. Um, but I just wanted to thank you for coming on today, chat, and I think all the listeners will really appreciate sort of the behind the scenes of Tim Farron and, and his life. <laughs> Lucy, thanks for having us. It's been a, a real blessing and uh, good luck and um, with all your other Lancashire-based podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. To keep up to date with all things from a Lancashire Lass, follow on Facebook and Instagram at from a Lancashire Lass. Don't forget to hit subscribe or follow so you can keep up to date with when each new episode is out.